Welcome to Trash Compactor. I'm Josh. You know, one of the taglines we use for this show is perspectives on Star Wars from the VHS generation. Because for me and my cohort, that's mostly how we experience Star Wars as kids. Not at a movie theater, but on home video. And joining me today is someone who literally wrote the book on Star Wars on home video. I'm very pleased to welcome the author of A Saga on Home Video, a fan's guide to Star Wars U.S. home video releases, and the webmaster of StarWarsFanWorks.com, Nathan P. Butler. Nathan, welcome to Trash Compactor. Hey, great to be here. Thank you. So before we get to the home video stuff, um, if you could just give us a little bit of background, what are the other fan works that your website name refers to, Star Wars Fan Works? So, um, so StarWarsFanWorks.com, which is very different now than it was when it launched in 2003, right now is sort of a hub for just my stuff at this point. Um, the stuff that I have written, um, I've done, so by, by profession, I'm an educator, I teach, I taught for about uh, 12, 13 years in a brick and mortar school. And then in the same county now, I head up the social studies department for the online program. So I'm full-time online. Um, but on the side, I've been able to write from time to time. Um, so uh, on that site is, for instance, a saga on home video is linked. Um, the one story that I did for uh, Star Wars Tales way back in the day for Dark Horse is on there. Um, uh, I've also contributed to some universes like A 10,000 Dawns and War Song slash Wars. Um, I had a couple of my own original fiction work. So all that stuff is there. It has sort of collapsed down into primarily being my site. Um, but for the first probably 10 years, give or take of its life, um, the fan works referred to the fact that it was sort of a home for fan audio. Um, there was a time when Star Wars fan audio, like the, what, before the word podcasting, when we just called ourselves internet radio shows, um, just didn't really have a home. Uh, it tended to be, we're sort of the black sheep in the corner of like the Force.net fan films message boards and stuff like that for a long time. Uh, and then there was a separate message board that got created, but not very well traveled. And there just wasn't sort of a home, kind of like TFN fan films had been for fan films for fan audio. Uh, so I set about creating that. I had done my first podcast um, in 2002, which is Chrono Radio, which was the third English language show. Um, and then my team and I put out the first serious Star Wars fan-made audio drama, Second Strike, in uh, late 2002, at Christmas Day 2002. Um, so within about a year since we were sort of on that ground floor, and it was a very tight-knit community at the time, we were able to sort of create this hub for it with a message board and kind of an IMDb-style database um, and a listing of all the different shows. I was even tracking total runtime. It was ridiculous. But it was because the, the genre was teeny-tiny. Um, but eventually, as podcasting became more of its own thing, not sort of a, a small little niche thing, now it's very broad, um, and you saw new shows appearing that just sort of appeared out of, uh, kind of spontaneously, as opposed to being spinoffs or other members of that same small community, um, it, the need for that was less and less. So slowly but surely, I sort of pared that down to my stuff. Um, also on there, I guess, uh, it's so, so I did podcasting for about 10 years. The other fan project I did for 20 years, almost 21, was the Star Wars Timeline Gold. Um, which is a 3,000 page massive Star Wars chronology document. And that is actually still on there. That's uh, starwarsfanwars.com slash timeline. But that is still there. Um, but for the most part, I've pared it down to sort of uh, what used to be nathanpbutler.com and dasagaonhomevideo.com and starwarsfanwars.com. Now kind of point to the same place. Um, but it's almost like I've had three tracks of, of fan fan works of my own there's been the, the there's been the timeline stuff there's been the podcasting stuff and now the home video stuff has sort of taken hold <laughs> big time um and is now sort of my primary um, focus these days 
No, that's a lot of stuff you have contributed to fandom over the years. The, uh, the timeline, if I'm not mistaken, I believe I read somewhere that the Lucasfilm Story Group used that to refer to for some of the stuff that they actually put out officially, or at least uh, I know there was a, there was Hidalgo. a couple of times there was um they brought me on to do dated battle maps and stuff like that the, the dates themselves not the maps uh, for the essential atlas um leland chi at one point when they were doing those they did like a vi like video timeline things for the old republic mmo when it was starting out he he mm -hmm. sh shot me an email do these dates look right to you they look right to me look at them <laughs> uh kind <laughs> of stuff um uh, and there's a couple times where i got mentioned as like a a, a thanks and a resource that was uh, used for I know, I think it was the Essential Readers Companion and the new Essential Guide to Characters um, when they were doing that stuff. Um, it was it was massive and took many, many years, much time. Uh, I'm kind of glad to have retired from it, but now I kind of feel like I'm the old man, right? Aside from the home video stuff, I've kind of retired from, <laughs> I retired from the timeline thing around 2018. I retired from the podcasting thing, except for commentaries I do for my Patreon um, around 2020. And then uh, the Patreon, even the commentaries are wrapping up. I just finished recording the last commentaries for the Clone Wars entirety of that series. Um, and I'll be shutting that down uh, middle of next year now that that kind of project is done. So it's almost like as, as I'm getting older, <laughs> <laughs> I mentioned before we, we start, I, I turn 43 tomorrow, uh, actually in a few in like a couple of hours as of us recording this. Um, it's like as I'm getting in my old age and fatherhood now, uh, I got a four year old. Um, that's definitely sort of narrowed the focus. Uh, it's kind of one of those, you need to actually choose what you want to do. You can't be the busybody always keeping yourself busy writing stuff or online. I... You focus on something. <laughs> uh, and home home video wound up becoming that focus more recently. So that's the one that wins, I guess. Yeah, you know, uh, just hearing you talk. So last week, I actually spoke to Jeff, otherwise known as Azeem, cool. the mm -hmm. person who ran TFN Fan Films. Mm -hmm. And through doing this podcast, I've tried to cover a lot of the the fan created works that sort of exist in fandom and something that i'm noticing i'm noticing that in a lot of ways star wars fans were inspired to do something or create something it was sort of ahead of the curve from where the rest of of culture is you know fan films sort of created the whole concept of you know web video user generated web video years before youtube even existed and um, we're solving problems and encountering issues that were that, you know, no one had figured out yet. Mm -hmm. And you um, you were part of the fan audio community that in recent years has become a real huge industry. And I think home video is also, though not a fan generated work. One of the things that was so fascinating to me of reading your volume one about Star Wars on home video is that it's sort of not just the story of Star Wars on home video, it's also the story of home video, right? <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah, to an extent. Yeah, it's um, it's kind of so to me, you're probably familiar with um, Lucas's line from I think it was from Star Wars to Jedi, the making of a saga where he says a special effect without a story is a pretty boring thing. Yes. Uh, I tend to think that a product guide without a history behind it is a pretty boring thing. Like I, I've got a lot of collector's books. Uh, most of them touch on home video just barely. They don't they're not very comprehensive at all. Um, but, you know, it's kind of nice to have those. I like flipping through them like I'm never going to own that, never going to own that, never going to own that. That's cool. But mm -hmm. I would never buy that because where would I put it kind of stuff looking at this volumes of Star Wars memorabilia. Um, but most of those tend to be just like, here's the item. Here's the name. Here's the year, maybe a price when that even meant anything in the ear in like the era of eBay. Um, and that's really kind of it was all that they really did. And I felt like 
what I really enjoyed about, uh, so I, in 2013, I started a, a series on YouTube called From the Star Wars Home Video Library um, to talk about the home video stuff, which eventually spurred a saga on home videos first edition in 2017, then this three volume second edition in 2021. Um, but what fascinated me was the story behind it. You know, like the development of it. Why? What has changed between these releases? Why was this release different? Um, which now is kind of frustrating because the more nuance you know, you're like, that's wrong when you see things. Like when you see an auction right. that says they're auctioning off a 1984 copy of A New Hope, and it's not. That's at least a 1986 copy because you can tell by this thing that someone grading it and auctioning it should know. Um, right. <laughs> but as you, as you sort of get, get lost in the nuances of it and the development of it, I thought that's probably a really interesting story. So to me, narrative history has always been the most interesting thing. Like I said, I teach social studies stuff. So no, um, I wanted say, to yeah, write it like, tracks. yeah, yeah. I, I wanted to write it as a narrative history. And I think to a large degree, Star Wars wasn't always ahead of the curve on media types. Like it came a while later, for instance, for DVD and Blu-ray. I remember example. that there was a long, long time, like mm -hmm. for years. Like, so, so I don't think um, Star Wars was released on DVD until 2004. Four, uh, yeah, the, the original mistaken. trilogy didn't hit until 2004. The first um, of the films to get released on DVD was, was Phantom Menace in 01. Um, right. But yeah. that, that was a while after DVD was already there. Um, you know, Clone Wars gets Blu-ray in 2008. Uh, the other films, the live action films, don't get any until 2011. Um, in fact, Clone Wars came out right, basically right as the uh, Blu-ray HD DVD format war. Second format war was kind of ending with HD DVD kind of limping off to die um but but just kind of looking at all that that was what i found fascinating like that development but it hasn't been necessarily ahead of the curve much of the time but in order to kind of understand why certain events were important i felt mm. like the context was needed of the formats themselves like i'm understanding sure. the great format war as i call it between you know vhs beta laser disc and ced and some other you know, in, in other regions like Video 8 and V2000 and VHD and stuff like that. Um, being able to understand that, also understanding like why it was such a big deal to have the leap between DVD and Blu-ray and then Blu-ray and 4K, um, the sound innovations, just stuff that would make it easier to appreciate. Because I realize, especially now, like I'm having students do assignments where they're interviewing someone about how life was when they were young adults and make the comparison of American culture when I teach sociology. And I'm realizing many of their parents that they interview are now my age. I'm no longer the right. young, cool <laughs> teacher anymore, right? Yeah. <laughs> um, and I realize, I mean, most of my students, for instance, in fact, I guess all of my students now, uh, none of them were alive for 9-11, for example. And it, it's hard to explain the feel of that time. But it's something that I kind of feel like you need that context to understand the years that followed. I think it's kind of the mm. same thing to a much lesser, less tragic, certainly, extent with home video. If you understand the context, then why certain releases mattered so much or were such a big deal at the time and, and are so beloved in some cases, um, that makes a lot more sense you know, to know that as opposed to just being, here's the product, here's a picture, isn't this cute? <laughs> you know, you, you really got to right. tell the story or it's not. It, it wouldn't be something I personally would want to read, I guess is the way I'm putting it. I, it, it, I'm very much, I, I look at these books and I reference them myself at times to look for information that I've forgotten. Um, it all falls under that same heading of a Henry Jones senior, right? I wrote it down so I wouldn't have to remember. Kind of my thing. <laughs> yes. I, no, I, I totally understand. So, um, uh, so you and I are about the same age. We just are a few years apart, I think. 
And, you know, one thing that I find very interesting along the lines of what you just described is um, I think in a lot of ways, we are the last generation to, for example, know what it's like to hear your, your favorite song on the radio and hold a tape recorder up to the speaker so that you could have it to listen to later at your leisure, right? Or you get the TV guide and you flip through and you see when your favorite movie is on or when that episode of Star Trek that you've never seen is on and you circle it and you make sure that you're awake to hit record on the VCR if you if you had a VCR or a blank tape to go from that to living in a world where we can watch anything and um, the highest quality wherever you are on whatever device at your leisure so that fundamental shift in our relationship to you know media and to movies in particular I find very interesting the idea that you know once upon a time if you wanted to see Star Wars, it either had to be playing in a movie theater or, you know, you had to have HBO and it had to be playing on HBO or some some pay cable or it like had to have a network TV debut. It it, it wasn't something that you could just throw on whenever the urge struck. You know, so if you're a kid in 1977 or 78 and you're going nuts for this movie called Star Wars, the idea that you could have a piece of Star Wars that you could experience in your own home was wild. Mm-hmm. They and they didn't. They their options were were pretty limited, right? I mean, if, if it's seventy seven, seventy eight, we're talking selected scenes on Super Eight. If you had a film projector in your home, or it was right. the little teeny kids handheld crank driven, you know, one minute worth of scenes. Star Wars Kenner movie viewer. There just was not. Um, yeah, I mean, it, it was it was it had to be magical, right? Because it, the, the options barely existed. Yeah. So the idea. So, I mean, yeah. So so you describe initially at the very beginning of your first volume, you know, you're talking about these. Um, I forget the name of the company. Ken Films. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. No relation to Kenner. No, no relation to Kenner that I know of. Right, just right. Ken Films. Yeah. They had these what, like six to eight minute long Super 8 reels, some with sound, mm-hmm. some without of just selected exciting scenes from from Star yep. Wars. Yep. And, you know, I think to someone, certainly to someone who wasn't alive when 9-11 happened, but like to someone who um, who isn't used to this scarcity of home media, that sounds kind of wild. Like who would want six disembodied minutes of a movie without the context or without sound even? But having that was something, you know, unique and special. It was a piece of the movie that you could take home and you could experience whenever you wanted and sort of remind yourself of that experience of watching Star Wars in a theater. Yep. And that and I will say you know, you're talking about how much it has changed. I mean, it's it, it's wild to think that most of the I mean, we're talking a change in a single lifetime essentially yeah. right now. Right. I mean, I mean, obviously, Star Wars itself only being around for uh, for a lifetime, you know, you know, heading towards the 50th anniversary where hopefully they will do something special. But you know, we're talking about, you know, it's 77, we're talking Super 8 reels. By, uh, you know, by 75, you've got beta being introduced, 76, and then in the U.S. in 77, VHS being introduced, um, 78 with um, with Laserdisc, 81 for CED, which didn't last very long, last like five years. Um, but these home media types sort of beginning right around the same time that Star Wars is beginning. Um, and... You know, the first Star Wars release of any kind was making of Star Wars uh, on VHS and beta in 79. You get a behind the scenes uh, or you get a reissue of that in 80. 
uh, with a new trailer on it, a behind the scenes pairing of that with a special about the Empire Strikes Back in 81. But we don't actually see any full versions of any of the films at all until 82, right? When, when A New Hope makes its debut on multiple formats. So that's like the VHS and so on era. It's the SD era. And yet we've leaped past that into DVD and then very quickly to Blu-ray and Blu-ray 3D and 4K and digital and digital 4K. And, and the filmmaking itself has been massively, you know, primarily through especially you know, Industrial Light and Magic and, and Lucasfilm itself to the point where you go from how on earth are we going to make this with a model and control the camera with a computer to get the right motion to, hey, we've got these LCD screens and a video game engine with a virtual reality-based camera positioning system so we can have the volume to create these massive backgrounds. We don't even need green screen anymore kind of stuff. And it's all been within basically the lifetime of Star Wars and the lifetime of many of the uh, Star Wars fans. I, I am definitely of that. I'm of what you might call like the, the quasi VHS generation. The, mm -hmm. the VHS, was, VHS was how I experienced it for years um usually right. empire jedi and making of a saga because that's what we were able to tape off of i think it was hbo um right. no one knew hope until i actually owned copies in 93 um but you know I, I was old enough technically for my mom to take me in 1980 as a baby and, and please don't ever do that please don't take a baby to a movie theater um <laughs> taking a, i was apparently taken as a baby to see empire and as a little kid to see i guess younger than my son is now about my son's age um, to go see Jedi, but I don't really have many clear memories of it, uh, of either. Right. If, like, I wouldn't expect to have them of Empire, but even of Jedi, really. Um, so for me, it, it is sort of a VHS generation thing. I think that's one of the fascinating things when you look at the way home video has developed and Star Wars in general. Um, they talk about how every generation kind of has the Star Wars they latch on to that's theirs. So there's the original trilogy generation. There's the prequel trilogy generation that appreciates it more than the previous generation did. The Clone Wars the same way. Uh, now the Disney fans era and so on. Um, I think to some degree, you see that reflected in things like which home video version someone prefers to watch or what exactly. their favorite home media type is and things like that. And it's it's easy. It's, it's both fascinating, but also kind of easy to find yourself pigeonholed if you're not willing to take a broader view. Um, I know a lot of but but at the same time, that also is where a lot of fans find their focus because there's so much out there. It's hard to collect everything. So if you're going to collect something, a lot of times it's leaning towards, you know, I grew up with VHS, I'm going to collect VHS. I'm, I grew up with DVD, I'm going to collect DVD and maybe Blu-ray. Um, but it's interesting just the, I, it's, it's weird. I mean, they talk about how technology advances so quickly now, doubling every however many years as far as you know, human knowledge and all that. Um, but just looking at it from a home video standpoint, just being able to see that um, to me was very, was, was fascinating you know, to, to imagine yeah. where we are now versus where we are in, we're in 77. Completely. And, you know, you're talking about the way that that technology has advanced in the span of one lifetime. And it is interesting because when talking about Star Wars on home video, most of that time we're talking about physical media. And we're living in a time where, while physical media still exists, it's certainly on the wane, um, what was the advent of streaming. And what's really fascinating is that the product and the home video format are almost converging because now, especially Tayson during the pandemic, theatrical films are going straight to streaming services. And now like home video and the product are kind of indistinguishable. It's all for streaming. Mm -hmm. I mean, right now, Star Wars exists as a direct to streaming thing that you experience mm -hmm. in your home. 
Yep. And imagine and imagine if you had told somebody that 20 years ago when they, they wouldn't understand direct what... to video. Direct to video means crap. It means right. horrible production <laughs> qualities. It means it's, exactly. it's Time Cop 2, not Time Cop 1. Why are you telling right. me direct to video? And right. yet that that is what it is now. Essentially, I mean, it's direct to streaming, but the production values um, that they can put behind it are are huge. And I think that uh, a lot of that is the waning of home video, but also the fact that they they're finally finding a, a way to monetize successfully monetize streaming to that extent um, and mm -hmm. broadband uh, permeation, which isn't complete, but but bigger, certainly and, and growing over time. Um, but, yeah, you're right. It's like the product itself. It's not go see it in theaters and wait to see it at home. It's right. Seeing it at home is the first way. And and for, for a lot of franchises, like take Star Trek. Star Trek fans are like, yeah, duh, we've been doing that for years. It's called TV shows, <laughs> right? Right. But Star Wars, I mean, what were our TV shows? You know, it was it was the Ewok telemovies. It was droids and Ewoks. It was the holiday freaking special. Um, I mean, Star Wars hadn't really come into its own as the idea of a television series until animation um, became more effective with, you know, like Clone Wars and so on. But live action even then. You know, not until Mandalorian. So it's it's no, yeah, and I even world. think it's no, absolutely, and I even think it speaks to something larger, a whole different phenomenon that is a little outside the subject that I intended to talk about, but it also has to do with sort of the disappearing line between you know a theatrical feature film and a TV show. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, it it used to be TV was sort of disposable and sort of ephemeral and sort of not as prestigious as feature films. And then somewhere along the line, the quality of TV was sort of increasing and increasing to the point where, you know, now separating the economics of it for a second and the incentives, the quality of storytelling that you see on, quote unquote, you know, prestige TV, it's like the the baseline is so high that TV is sort of unrecognizable from even, say, the 90s, just in terms of the kinds of storytelling and the the quality in terms of the, the performances and the complexity of the writing. And, you know, it's really sort of a whole different animal, which is, I think, part of why Star Wars can exist as a direct-to-video, <laughs> a direct-to-TV um, you know, week to week uh, TV show. It's sort of the dominant medium now. Mm -hmm. Yeah. yeah. And a lot of that, I think, you know, whether we're talking Babylon 5 or anything else around that era, just the idea of you can do epic serialized storytelling on TV. Right. Uh, right. But a lot of that, I think, for Star Wars does come down to, you know, the the economic aspect of just being able to get high production values on television. Yes. But I, I was just speaking about this the other I forget where it was. I can't remember if it was on. Uh, uh, it may have been been doing a, a, a YouTube video or something, um, but the idea that we're at the point now where it is relatively cost effective, relatively I means still expensive, um, but less so than it was before to get really good effects work, um, whether it's backgrounds or characters or whatever it might be. So we're at the point where, you know, the spectacle we used to go to the movies for can be seen at home and we're so used to assuming it. Yeah, Hulk's going to look like a Nobody would have griped about She-Hulk 15 years ago, right? Uh, and yet right. now it's like, like, look at the CG on her face. I'm not sure that worked kind of stuff. Um, where now the effects and the spectacle, the, the uh, uh, Bruckheimer-ness, the Michael Bay-ness of your film wow. is no longer going to cut it anymore, right? Everybody has to up their storytelling game. And when you've got two hours to tell a story versus you've got a season to tell a story, even if the season is like eight episodes or six episodes, um, there's a strength there, I think, that um, that's kind of been harnessed in a way that it really 
uh, it hadn't before. Um, but again, I think a, a lot of that comes down to the streaming side because the, the budget can be there for these big event type shows. Like I, we just, my wife and I just, uh, before recording this, we had just finished watching the season finale of rings of power. You wouldn't mm. have been able to see something with those production values. Had it not been for Amazon basically being the mountain of gold, right? That smog is, is climbing atop of, um, right. Um, but yeah, it's, it's definitely a different beast, but it's leading no pun intended with smog, I guess with beast, uh, it's definitely <laughs> leading to kind of a different thing now though, in that we are seeing a waning of the physical media. Um, right. sort of as a response to this, um, uh, it was already probably going to happen. You see that in waves kind of like, like, um, you know, the, the U S gave up on beta before some other parts of the world. Like you would still see beta star Wars releases in Mexico in 95, but in the U S pretty much done by the late eighties, um, laser disc, nothing here after 97 for star Wars, but phantom menace got one in Japan. Um, now Blu-ray 3D is going that direction. Blu-ray 3D for Disney-based releases, you won't find here for a while. You could find it in the UK. Even the UK has stopped now. Now you got to really turn to Japan to import that stuff. And we're seeing that with the Marvel stuff, for instance, right now. Um, we just actually, it's this, this year is the 40th anniversary of the original Star Wars film, A New Hope, hitting home video for the very first time. And there's no hurrah about it. There's nothing special about it. Um, we didn't in the U.S. even get new releases of the films. In Europe, they did. In parts of Europe, in the U.K. and parts of Europe. In Australia, they did. We didn't even get those releases over here at all. Um, it's like, to Disney's mind, to some degree, a lot of the physical release market for the U.S. has sort of faded, whereas it's still vibrant enough in other regions to keep producing stuff like Blu-ray 3D discs and stuff like that. Um, mm. But it comes in waves. It just feels like this wave, is, like usually it's one wave ends because another one is beginning. Now it just sort of right, feels like another format is beginning, right? Like a wave is fading, but the format that's taking its place isn't a physical one, which opens up a right. whole new new realm, both in terms of streaming you know, and ownership. I mean, if you bought the original trilogy uh, or, or well, the original trilogy and the prequel trilogy back in 2015, when it was first released digitally, except for A New Hope, which had its rights tied up in perpetuity with 20th Century Fox at the time. Uh, Disney didn't own it at the time. Um Every single one of the films, aside from A New Hope, got a new fanfare that removed 20th Century Fox from it. It was an awful fanfare that just played over the Lucasfilm logo for 2015. But then Disney comes in, Disney purchases, et cetera, et cetera. And when the time comes to do new releases of the uh, the Disney Plus cuts, the McClunky editions, um, right. that wind up uh, being on the streaming service, they replaced the 2015 copies on all of the digital media services with the Disney plus cuts, unless you downloaded it on a platform that let you download it all. Essentially the 2015 digital cuts of episodes one, two, three, five, and six no longer exist. Right. Like you paid for them and now they're like, Oh, but this is better. Okay. But you didn't ask. But that's where, of course, the, the, you know, the terms of service and stuff like that come in. You're not really owning the stuff. You're licensing the stuff to a degree or somewhere in there. It's said, you own this file. You can use this file. You can't transfer it to someone else. Blah, 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 blah. Oh, and we reserve the right to replace, remove or alter at any time kind of stuff. Which, um, there's so which, much in that. Which happened, which happened very recently with the Warner Brothers acquisition or merging of HBO. I'm not exactly clear on who merged with who. The point is there were a bunch of shows that removed from HBO Max. And as of last week, if you purchased a digital copy on Amazon or wherever, they delivered 
deleted it from your digital library mm -hmm. uh, yep. because you don't actually own these things, as you said. Yeah. You own a license that allows you to watch it for as long as they choose to allow you to do that. Um, something that was very interesting, actually, that I didn't realize is for the very first home video releases of Star Wars, the rental only releases that you were talking about in volume one, they actually had some some similar legalese on the box that made it clear that while you were able to have this in your possession and watch it, that this video was still the property of 20th Century Fox. Yes, as you were saying that, I'm like, I know where this is on my shelf. It's one of the things I actually know where it is. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so in May of 1982, they did the Video Rental Library edition of A New Hope on a VHS and Beta, uh, in the US at least. It was it, in similar form in places like the UK. But basically, they were rental only. They were meant to be things that you could watch, uh, you could rent and, and, and bring back. You weren't allowed to keep it. They actually had serial numbers on stickers on the cassettes and on the cases because they were supposed to be able to be tracked that way. Of course, in a, in a pre-internet world of tracking these things. So most of them didn't ever get tracked. Um, right. But uh, this was before in June seeing the release on uh, Laserdisc and then in August on CED and then an actual retail purchasable VHS and beta in September of that year. Um, but all the ones from May to make sure that everybody knew this was rental only. The, the packaging says video rental library really, really big. Um, it has the same kind of warning on it, but even the cassette label itself in teeny tiny print. Uh, I'm looking at the beta one right now. It uh, says this video cassette and its container are the property of 20th Century Fox Video Incorporated and the material recorded on is the property of 20th Century Fox Video Incorporated or its licensors. Rental of this video cassette does not confer upon the user or any other person any rights to copy, sell, rent, barter, or publicly exhibit this video cassette or the material recorded on it for a fee or for free. And the user and every other person is specifically prohibited from engaging in any such activity, uh, any such copying, sale, rental, barter, or public exhibition without express written permission from the copyright owner violates federal copyright law and may result in criminal and or civil penalties. This video cassette or the video cassette and its container must be returned to the dealer from whom they were rented at the end of the rental term, which is why you saw a lot of places doing what they called lifetime rentals. You know, pay us a buttload like 80 bucks plus, which back then was quite a bit. Um, and you're renting it, but you don't ever have to bring it back. So in other words, to translate that, it's it's don't get it twisted. You don't actually own this video. We technically still own this video. So don't. So don't, but, um, uh, you know, which reminded me of the same issues that we're dealing with now where you pay for for a digital copy of something and you're not actually paying to own a copy. You are paying for the right or the privilege to view this copy for as long as they're willing to let you. Right. And it's definitely it is something that is it's a it's a digital media thing, not even necessarily just home video, for example. Uh, and Star Wars fans dealt with this. There was a point. So in this and this was bizarre. It's probably the most egregious example that I noticed. Um, there was a point early in the run of uh, one of the Darth Vader series from Marvel Comics, since Marvel got the license back during the, the reboot and everything, um, where basically an issue of Darth Vader came out that called Tarkin Moff before it should have. And basically said that a significant time jump had taken place in that series. We were quite a bit further along than the series' last issue was. Um, but there's a character in the background who should have been dead. Because they died in a different story. And the solution was to, in future printings, fix those and change when the story supposedly took place to a much earlier time period. 
But if you owned a digital copy, the next time you logged in and synced it, or if you ever like like removed it and downloaded it again, it was replaced yeah. with the updated version. You no longer could get access to the original print version. And that was kind of like the pre-staging. That happened a bit before what happened with the Disney Plus cuts. Um, but I still don't know that the community really saw the Disney Plus thing, the Disney Plus cuts replacing the ones that were purchased in 2015 coming. But I think it was because we expected as much as they had hyped it that until they were actually on 4K, you know, physical releases, that that was like Disney Plus was going to use that as a selling point, as an exclusive thing. We've got the 4K right. updated versions, but they didn't. They all, they, within you know a matter of a week or two, they had pushed it out to all the digital platforms too. Right. Yeah. And, you know, like you could imagine, you know, setting aside my personal feelings about the merits of, say, the special editions of the original trilogy versus the original releases of the original trilogy. But, you know, given how George Lucas has spoken about the original cuts of those films from 1977, 80 and 83 as being rough cuts that in his mind no longer exist, you could imagine that if he had made those changes like 20 years later, or if the home video ecosystem were a little more advanced in 1997, that something could have happened where you would log in to your digital library to watch Star Wars and all of a sudden you're original version is replaced with the special edition. So, I mean, it's that sort of thing that we're talking about here, which sort of um, is a bit, you know, concerning for me as someone who's a fan of the history of film and the history of the medium and having that that record, which you so comprehensively and so adroitly chart in your work. So let me, let's go back for a second. Let's talk about the first great format war, which mm. in my mind, up until reading volume one of A Saga on Home Video, was a format war between VHS and Beta, but I hadn't really considered the role Laserdisc and CED played. Could you sort of explain the pros and cons of each of those formats, like what mm. they were and what they did well and what they did not so well? So the big two that most people remember or most people think about uh, VHS and beta. Um, and even even to this day, I still sometimes slip and say beta max. Beta max was a Sony branded version of it, but beta. The, uh, which I want to point out, that was something that I had never known that I learned from your volume. So thank you for, well, uh, for well, educating helps. me on that point. I learned it because I said it as Betamax enough times on the YouTube channel that I was corrected. And then I made sure to make sure that was in the book. Um, I would say that the, the key thing with beta and VHS was the fact that it was recordable media, right? The fact that if you had the players, uh, oftentimes, especially after the first generation of the players, you had the ability to record on them. So you could capture stuff. And there were people who back then said, you know, the ability to record media at all is going to be the death of theaters and the death of television. And, you know, just like the, the ability to download music was going to be the death of all music and stuff like that. Um, I believe you're referring to Jack Valenti making the mm -hmm. comparison to the Boston Strangler. Something, uh, yeah, that, something that, like that, that it was going to be yeah, just, that famous. Yeah, yeah right. <laughs> um, but I mean, those those kind of had that advantage. But they also had the advantage that if you were watching a movie that's like two hours long, you just sat and watched it. Um, because you didn't have to change cassettes or anything. You didn't have to change VHS cassettes unless you were watching like Titanic later and stuff like that. The, the long films. Right. Um, with Laserdisc, you had and, and 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 the argument can be made that Beta was a better picture quality than VHS slightly. I don't know that my eyes, especially on current equipment, could see enough of the difference to be able to tell you either way. Um, but but that is sort of like the 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 the, the way the common wisdom tends to go. Um, but they were both surpassed from a visual standpoint by Laserdisc. 
which is an, an optical media, um, gigantic and freaking heavy. So that's another downside of that compared to VHS and beta because they were very portable, whereas LaserDiscs really were not. I uh, think LP sized, but heavier. Um, but they there were two different actual versions of it, kind of like you'd have different speeds on a VHS or a beta. You had a standard and extended play laser discs, and the extended play could fit basically an hour on each side of a disc, but you did have to flip it in the middle of the movie. And in the case of A New Hope, uh, actually A New Hope and Empire, they split it across two different discs for Jedi. To fit it on one disc meant removing certain frames within the, the process to time compress the film so it would actually fit within two hours because it was actually a little bit bigger than what the, the medium could hold. Um, so really nice picture quality. And you could even do things like um, freeze frames and stuff like that when you had the, uh, the standard play version as opposed to extended play. But standard play was even worse, half an hour per side. So you're looking at four sides just to watch a two-hour movie and you're, constantly, you're either flipping it or you have a, a player that automatically flips, but the automatic flipping still takes time. It still takes a bit to kind of load isn't the right word, but basically to find the right spot on the disc and, and, and change the position and all. Um, CED was just kind of doomed from the start. Um, CED, a capacitance electronic disc, is basically a vinyl record, essentially, that uses a special kind of stylus to create a circuit, uh, I believe it is, that allows for holding movies on vinyl, essentially. But they were crazy fragile, like any vinyl disc tended to be. Um, so to watch it, you had these enormous caddies, which were basically, if you're of my generation uh, or our generation, you probably think back to the bit, the uh, three and a half inch uh, floppy disks and what those right. looked like. Young kids, it's what the save icon was made to look like, um, right. <laughs> but just huge, but enormous because the discs themselves were basically the size of a laser disc, except now they're housed inside these big plastic things and you'd stick the big, big plastic thing into the player remove it which kept like a little uh, frame and the, the disc itself to play and they'd have to stick the plastic frame back in afterwards to remove the disc again they were just very cumbersome um visual visual wise not as good as laser disc um and also not recordable there were a couple of variants of recordable laser discs but they were pretty niche um but not recordable at all for ced which rca was putting out that only really lasted like five years like i mentioned like i think 81 to 86 um so it's kind of like for video files uh, P-H-I-L-E-S, for video files, right. <laughs> Laserdisc, particularly standard play Laserdisc, is like the 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 gold standard of that era. Uh, it's what the mm. definitive collection Laserdisc set in 93 was on, which is the, the sort of the genesis of the THX Remastered Edition. It was actually remastered for that, and then two years later became the THX Remastered Edition. Um, that's kind of the gold standard, video quality-wise. Um, but you couldn't record on it. It was cumbersome. The players were large. Um, so VHS, it was really more VHS and beta battling out who, who would dominate the home. And it wound up being VHS that came out on top in that one. And you would see there were more oper more chances to like dive into that. They had um, VHD, which was another format that Japan used. It was a little bit smaller, but it was also vinyl um, that didn't last for very long, uh, at least didn't catch on as much. Um, some markets uh, had video 2000, which is kind of like an, an answer to VHS and beta slightly uh, wider, basically didn't really catch on. Um, even uh, some regions and the United States, just not for Star Wars, took um, uh, there was a, a format called video eight was basically eight millimeter, um, but not like eight millimeter film reels, basically the size of almost like an audio cassette, uh, which kids are like, I don't know what that is either, um, that you would use for a camcorder. But right. some companies actually put out 
pre-recorded movies on it. In fact, some of the, well, yeah, the rarest Star know. Wars stuff, some of the rarest yeah. Star Wars stuff out there is video eight stuff from like the UK and, and Japan at this point. Um, but nothing ever really just beat the versatility of VHS, despite it not being like the best looking of the formats. It was the one that had the most utility and spread far and wide. It's kind of like right now where 4K has utility outside of watching, say, 3D movies like a 3D TV would. So the, the TVs with 3D capability essentially have died, whereas 4K is everywhere now. Um, right. It's that versatility, utility factor that drives the market and. You know, VHS managed to pull it off uh, as we were all recording stuff at home and dubbing stuff and and doing things that I'm sure that Valente would have pulled his hair out about. Yes, exactly. Um, so the original trilogy received VHS releases. Each one of the films was released individually, not all at the same time in the early 1980s. And it wasn't until 1987, I believe, that they were sold all together as a trilogy, or is that a little later? It depends on how you look at it. The, the first, what we think of as a boxed set, an actual box to hold each film together, um, would have been in 1990. But before then, 88, they actually sold that current era's iteration of the films, which was basically... Um, it was the same theatrical version of Empire that we had seen and, and Jedi that we had seen, but it was an updated version of A New Hope that had been audio remastered in 85. Um, kind of together with like a little paper band around it that said Star Wars Trilogy right. on it. Um, it was really the first sort of boxed set, if you want to call it, a, it's not even a box, but a first set of those that were sold. Um, but it, that's actually not, I mean, these days you would expect it to come out right alongside Return of the Jedi. You know, uh, the right. third one comes out, put out the box set with all of them. Um, it was only two years. And you figure it took five years for uh, for A New Hope to hit home video, four years for Empire, three years for Jedi. Two years after that, you get the first time they're actually being sold together, not just advertised together. So that's, you know, I guess it kind of felt like a quantum leap at the time, maybe. <laughs> but but definitely weird to us today, for sure. For sure. But like with the maturation of the media and the adoption of the format and sort of the relationship people have with films and ex the expectations of having a video of a film available and stuff. I mean, yeah, I mean, I guess that's sort of understandable when you think about it that way. I want to go back a second. Um, you were talking about the 1985 remaster of A New Hope. You know, I remember when the special editions came out, some friends of mine, like there were certain lines that are in the special edition versions that were not the same as what we've remembered from our old VHS copies. And I remember a lot of people were sort of like, yeah, and they changed all these lines and stuff, blah, blah, blah. But, but that's actually not quite correct. It's that there were multiple mixes made in 1977 that had changes as they were creating new new soundtracks for new formats. So the 1985 remaster of A New Hope had some changes on the soundtrack that you mentioned from what was previously available. If you could explain a little what those um, sure. those changes were and how it came about. Uh, so primarily, uh, it was some missing lines, essentially. So it originally, and they actually fixed it in theaters, I want to say for the second run. Um, yeah. But for the first run in theaters, the original stereo soundtrack was missing some lines from C-3PO um, like there. So they're in, uh, you know, they're in the Death Star little control room and they're, uh, you know, they've R2 is plugged in. They've got the Death Star uh, schematics coming up so they can see how the tractor beam works. And 3PO talks about how, you know, you have power loss at one of the terminals will allow the ship to leave, et cetera, et cetera. He, everybody's kind of looking at the screen and he's explaining as they're looking at the screen. But of course, nobody's mouth is moving because it's C-3PO. 
Well, in the original uh, theatrical stereo mix, the lines are missing. Everybody's just kind of looking dumbly at the screen and you hope that, you know, whenever Obi-Wan leaves, he knows what's going on from just looking at the screen because nobody's explained it to the audience. Um, and that was fixed in theaters. And for whatever reason, uh, and, and we know the, the video version that we got in 82 had to have come from the newest theatrical video part, at least from 81, because it had the A New Hope subtitle. There's never been a version of A New Hope released on home video um, that was missing the subtitle until they sort of recreated one um, for DVD in 2006 and then reissued that in 2008 because the subtitle was in place as of 81. Um, and so, so we know, oh, that's the version with the subtitle in 82 on home video. And yet the soundtrack mastering, whatever they used, came from, I guess, that original stereo version. And it was missing 3PO's line, just like it had been in theaters. It was present on like the mono version in theaters, which is really cool. If we ever get a chance to see like anything that's that has captured, like Pugo did a, a capture of the uh, the the monoka because it's got a very different voice for Baru. It's not blasted Biggs, where are you? It's blasted Wedge, where are you? And there's just little changes. But 3PO's line was there. And in 85, um, Ben Burke came in and digitally remastered the audio um, to be crisper. Uh, just, just a better general mix. And one thing that he did was fix the omission of the 3PO line. Um, so that's actually where that, you know, I think I mentioned the auction house earlier. <laughs> um, sometimes you run into issues because there's a lot of issue. There's a lot of releases from 84 up to about 88, 89 that all look pretty much the same for A New Hope. But the 84 one that is identical to the previous ones, just in new packaging, has no digitally mastered in the little red triangle on the front or on the spine because it hadn't mm. gone through that process in 85 yet. All the subsequent ones starting in 86, that's when you've got that line added back in. But ironically, in 95, when they did the THX Remaster Edition, they left it out again. They tweaked some things, but they left it out again, only to come back in the special editions and then keep it after. It was like, you had one job, you know? <laughs> and you knew this was an issue before. You've now made the problem return. There was also a line that was missing from my memory, watching it on VHS in the early 90s, I believe before the 1995 THX remastered the Faces release, as I believe it's referred to sometimes, mm -hmm. um, my version, the version I grew up with, as I learned from you, was I think the um, 1992 VHS release with the titles on the box were all in yellow. It was sort of the original mm -hmm. logos on the three boxes. Those are my first. Those are actually my first. As well. Okay. Okay. Well, the, there you go. the widescreen and full screen versions from ninety two. Not, that not I got the widescreen for me. The full screen, the, the brick. Yes. Right. Right. The, brick. Uh, the first time that I ever saw Star Wars in widescreen, I think, was when it aired on the Sci Fi Channel, and it was like a revelation to me because I yeah, had no idea that I had only been seeing. <laughs> yeah. Like I was like, <laughs> oh my goodness. Wait a minute. What? Like there's a Gamorrean guard on that frame when Luke goes down the thing. Like, oh my God, like there's so much stuff I've never seen. Um, so for the THX remastered edition, I made damn sure that I got the widescreen version when that was released, which I believe uh, came in like a flat. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah, it's like there are two, of, uh, two versions. They were kind of flat boxes. One was like a shoe box that opened from the top and one opened from the side. But it was basically like a big flat set where yeah. the, the cassettes were laying flat on their backs next to each other to take up as much space on your shelf as possible. As much space as possible. Yeah. I remember that ad campaign very well, the one last time. Mm -hmm. um, and I remember the THX Faces edition came out in August 1995, I want to say. But the widescreen was not released until about November, December for the holidays. Because I remember that uh, there was a Suncoast video in my local mall 
And I kept going in there and asking if they had the widescreen. They kept telling me, no, 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 we'll let you know when it's in. I'm sure I was driving them crazy. But um, one thing I'm curious about, because obviously the big selling feature, aside from it being the last time that the original trilogy would be made available in that form, and I don't think we quite understood the implications of what that actually meant at the time, but the big selling feature was the enhanced sound and picture quality, even though the capability of the format VHS, it was still VHS. Mm Mm-hmm. Um, what, why was the sound and the picture superior to the previous VHS release? So, yeah, I mean, the big thing, and you're right, one, the one selling point was it would be the original one last time, right? One last time. Uh, Although what's interesting about that was that they, they marketed it as it was your last chance to get a new hope, you know, the original Star Wars one last time. Because remember, they, they had not yet announced that Empire that and Jedi were getting sleep. special editions right. too. They just had said so for, for A New Hope. So it was kind of like, wait, you know, maybe, maybe we would have made a different decision if we knew there were all three. Um, yeah. <laughs> but, but yeah, it was, so the idea was that THX was, it, it's, it's basically like a certification standard, right? It's, it's right. going, it's going to meet this standard if you're going to produce this at all, or if you're going to show it in our theaters at all, it must meet this certain standard. Um, so they went in and they, they did a lot of cleanup uh, on on the film uh, with the remastering process uh, to just kind of clean up the sound, clean up the video. So it's about as good as it could have looked. So using digital tools? Uh, I would have to go back and look. I, I think or was it, would, it just like a better transfer from? I know it was a better the... transfer. I think there was some digital cleanup as well, uh, or at least digital mastering or digital um, uh, putting uh, putting the elements together. Um, hence oh, some God, of the, okay. the weird sound differences and stuff like that. Like, did, like, cause mm-hmm. they, they had, they, I mean, Lucasfilm had sort of pioneered edit droid and sound droid, the digital mm-hmm. editing, nonlinear stuff. Uh, and they really kind of had a chance to showcase it there, but it, a lot of it came down to just um, like, we're going, and it was kind of the weird story that's in 93. It's we're going to remaster this for a better picture quality, a better sound quality, even though you may not be able to notice it on a home system, unless you had some really high end stuff. Um, but it was put out on Laserdisc uh, for the definitive collection. And then there was sort of an experiment over in the UK saying, well, these films keep being on these top lists of sellers, not at the very top, on these top lists of sellers. And it's they've been out for years and years and years. Why not put a marketing campaign behind this and let's push them out again? And they did that mm-hmm. in 94 in the UK um, for widescreen and full screen versions that were basically the THX remastered masters. Um, Without the the big uh, without the certification officially behind it, um, uh, and also without the big marketing push that we would see globally, and then once that was successful in '94 in the UK and '95 was like a global push for the same kind of thing, um, but it was really sort of something that was created for Laserdisc. Uh, but there was sort of the, rec- the the experiment in the UK of let's do something on other media, particularly VHS, and then the, then when that was successful. Uh, there was a global push for kind of a similar thing, um, but it was really it, it was something more most noticeable at the I would say at the time most notable through Laserdisc. It, it did look better on VHS to a degree. It did sound better, less hiss, but um, it's one of those things that these days it's hard to appreciate because you almost have to have that era's tech to watch it on, right? Exactly. Um, to really exactly. get that 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 feeling out of it. It definitely was not the kind of leap that we would see later, but of course those leaps came with their own baggage with the, you know, subsequent changes. But it's when people ask, you know, what's, you know, what's the best way to watch the original? 
usually they mean just pre-special edition. That's probably it. It's probably the THX remastered edition, unless you can find yourself a Technodisc special widescreen edition of A New Hope out there, which are kind of like unicorns. What is that? What so, is the Technodisc? Yeah, so, so the first time they did releases in the U.S. of uh, widescreen versions at all was based on some Japanese Laserdiscs that had come out earlier that were widescreen for the first time. Um, the special collection, they called them. So over here was called the special widescreen edition. But what they had essentially done was they based those on the Japanese masters that had, had the position of the picture moved a little bit to make room for subtitles to be burned in and stuff like that. Because subtitles wasn't something you could turn on. It had to be built into the image. Um, right. And when, when first released, uh, A New Hope got released actually had an issue where basically the matting on it, the black matting on it, keeps squeezing the picture vertically as the film goes along. So there's a significant difference in the height of the, of the image as the film goes along. Um, Technodisc comes in, which I'm about in like 93, 94-ish, and is the one then mastering them. And they use a different master, and it's gorgeous. It's it's really nice looking. That aspect ratio issue is gone. The problem is they were they were produced in fairly low numbers, and it's super hard to find. So this is so the format is still laser disc. It's still it's laser a, disc. It's a laser disc release. Okay. Yeah, this is a laser disc release. In the U.S., you didn't see a widescreen VHS release until '93, which was that the special letterbox collector's edition, which is actually the first one that I bought alongside the 1992 brick uh, in '93. And I was doing something similar to what you were doing at Suncoast, except I was doing it by phone to the Lucasfilm Company store. Because I had one of the catalogs <laughs> from the uh, video games. I would yeah. call them almost every day. When is it shipping? When is it shipping? When it... And I had ordered those <laughs> alongside Sega CD's version of Rebel Assault that was heavily delayed. So they heard from me like mm. a couple times a week. And they're like, <laughs> yes, we know. We know. My mom's sitting there regretting that she let me order it with my allowance by going through her credit card. She's like, oh, <laughs> I know. You can call them again if you want. It's an 800 number kind of thing. Um <laughs> But yeah, so you, you had those in 90, um, in 92, and a lot of times those are confused with, it's kind of like, you know, with, with the release uh, in September of 82, um, a VHS and beta thinking, well, those were the first. Well, even for the films, you know, they, were, they hit CED and Laserdisc first. It was the rental version that preceded those. Same kind of thing here. There were Laserdisc versions of widescreen a few years before we saw widescreen versions on VHS. It's just that the VHS right. set is sort of well-remembered because it had that holographic cover and all that kind of stuff. It, it got the attention. Uh, and then it just became commonplace to have widescreen starting with those uh those 95 ones. Or I guess 94 in the UK really kind of picked that one up. So after the 95 THX remastered release on VHS, um, you sort of had the VHS release of the special editions, right? Which I guess was 97, 98, right? Somewhere thereabouts. So yeah, that's uh, right 97. It was shortly after the theatrical premiere. So they premiered fairly early in the year. In theater, yeah. so they were able to actually come out the same year. And it was, and they actually got over here at least um, VHS and Laserdisc. It was the last hurrah for Laserdisc over here for Star Wars. Yeah, because I remember that in that era, Laserdisc was still what the serious video files had. Of course, um, at my age, I was still at the mercy of whatever mm -hmm. um, yep. you know player my parents had in the house. We did not have a Laserdisc yep. player. They saw no need for a Laserdisc mm -hmm. player. And in retrospect, I. I agree. I agree with them, especially knowing that DVD was about to become the dominant format. The first DVDs, I think, are released in 1997, 98. But Star Wars... Uh, well, the first DVDs on the market. Yeah. So yeah, DVDs on the market. Yeah, I think like late 97 and 1998. DVD becomes the dominant format very quickly. 
But Star Wars, the original Star Wars films aren't released on DVD until uh, 2004, mm-hmm. somewhere thereabouts, right? Yeah. Um, do you have any insight why it took so long for Star Wars to be released on DVD? Because I remember the website, um, they had a list of the most wanted titles on DVD and Star Wars was always at the top. Mm-hmm. And for years and years, it was always like the holy grail of DVD. Why isn't Star Wars on DVD? Yeah. Do you have any idea why they waited so long? I mean, I think part of it was just sort of testing the waters to some degree with um, with Phantom Menace. Uh, and you could actually see a little bit of the testing of the waters in, in between 2001, 2002, because with 2001, you only get a widescreen release of Phantom Menace. Uh, it's not until 2002 when they realize, oh, we're going to do widescreen and full screen. You know, to, to quote Marty McFly, you know, some of you guys aren't ready for that yet, but your kids are going to love it um, <laughs> with widescreen. Uh, OK, so some of you don't want widescreen. Here's full screen here. Have less picture. Yeah, let's yeah. do that. Um, and they, they sort of corrected their quote unquote oversight and released a full screen version of Phantom Menace alongside um, Attack of the Clones in 02 as far as DVD went. Um, so they're kind of testing the ground to that degree. But I think a lot of it came down to they're heavily at work on prequel stuff and they didn't. They, as we eventually saw, it, this was not just going to be the special editions getting a re-release. They were going to go mm. back and do sort of a, a recompositing of certain things, swap out certain things. Uh, they actually did, uh, and this is something that a lot of times gets gets overlooked. Um, what we think of as the Blu-ray resolution, the high definition, was actually a scan done for the DVDs. They mm. were just put on the DVDs that were lower resolution. But the scan was done for those, um, which is why some of the color issues um, and I, I'm not super conversant in, in color correction, but some of the color issues on DVD carried over to the Blu-ray and weren't actually fixed until the 4K releases the next time they did a massive um, like remastering process on them uh, and and recompositing and everything. Um, but it was just the fact that, you know, they, they had to go back and they're doing a whole new scan and then tweaking all this stuff. I think it was to some degree it was a matter of time. Mm. um in that regard but again at the same time star wars to some degree has been late to the party you know a few times again the original films not hitting blu-ray until three years after clone wars had i mean to have the saga's debut on blu-ray be the clone wars film i mean not knocking the clone wars film too much but (laughs) it was the clone wars film um, I think even among Clone Wars fans, I think that there's some some general agreement yeah. that, that that film wasn't its its strongest outing. Yeah, that, that very much. So when, you, when you got a character you're going to call Stinky, no, just let it go. <laughs> uh, but it's, and it's kind of the same thing. It took a while for 4K. It took until Last Jedi for 4K. Um, oh, that's true. Right, right. No, yeah. you're right about that. Yeah. Before I move on from the 2004 DVD release, I just have a couple questions there. So one of the things that that release is famous for is that they... Um, they kind of made a compromise and sort of acquiesced to fan demand to have a version of the original non-special edition trilogy as sort of a bonus feature on that set, but they're not widescreen anamorphic. So in other words, the black bars at the top and the bottom of the screen are baked into the picture. So even if you play it on a widescreen TV, it's still going to show that and it's going to be small, Mm -hmm. much to the chagrin of a lot of fans. Uh, so two things about that. Number one, those were the 1993 remasters for the Laserdisc release. Is that correct? Is that where they were sourced yeah, from? Yeah, so the, the bonus discs from 2006 that were reissued in 2008 were basically just a scan or just from the masters of the definitive collection in 93, except 
on the opening of A New Hope, since it was going to have the subtitle if they did it that way, they sort of chopped that opening off and had a pretty decent film version that they scanned from before there was a subtitle and sort of slapped it on there. So in essence, it was kind of a new cut entirely. Yeah, so that's what I wanted to ask you about because you mentioned it earlier. So you said that they recreated the original crawl without the subtitle episode for A New Hope specifically for that? Yeah, well, it wasn't that they recreated it per se. They had a an old, they had a film copy that was in decent condition and just essentially scanned that piece and spliced them right. together, essentially. But yeah, just for that, because because they were advertising as it's the original theatrical version. And, uh. and the way they advertised it, depending on where you looked, it was the, it recreates the theatrical experience and all there's all different ways of, of phrasing it that made it sound like what we were supposed to be getting was what was originally in theaters it was close but it wasn't but that would have been i guess the dead giveaway would have been if the opening of a new right. hope had the subtitle and they really wanted to it was like they wanted to give you the original theatrical experience but they wanted to do it in the least uh expensive uh, the, the the path of least resistance sort of way to do it right well, see, but um, that's interesting, though, because so. because it seems to me that if they wanted to do the path of least resistance, they wouldn't have bothered to restore the original original crawl without the subtitle. Right. I, I like feel like that's a, it's, I think that was a I would love to say that that was them lovingly wanting to recreate it because they really wanted to give us what they've been saying they were going to give us. I feel like it was more of a. This is the tripwire that could cause it to explode. So let's um, avoid this trap and then everything well, else is fine to, to some degree. But uh, I mean, really, it, yeah. t- it takes a lot of I mean, it, you have to be kind of like nerd, right? Like me um, to be what? sitting back what? saying, well, wait a second, no, this is podcast. No, yeah, exactly. This is that, that this is the third version. This, this is the third home video version of A New Hope. And this is the second home video version of Empire and Jedi because A New Hope got that remastering in 85. And then they all got the remastering uh, for 93 being put out with that little change to the beginning of a of a new hope but but to, to you'd have no, but, to really be able to say like i know this was 90 i know this is from this mind like you were saying before like here's this line that changed i know that's the thing that changed so i know this is not that kind of stuff and i don't know that they cared enough no no but that's what's fascinating they obviously didn't really care because otherwise they would have released it at anamorphic widescreen mm-hmm. which is i think the real tripwire that upset and, and isn't there was and correct me if I'm wrong. I I don't remember, but but a long time I remember hearing that part of let's put it out as a bonus and not do a lot of work on it was also a if you put out the original version as opposed to anything from '97 and onward, a cut goes to to Lucas's ex-wife. There was some talk of that. I don't know that there was ever any actual substance to that or not. No, yeah, that's something that that um I think pops up a lot as sort of hearsay. Urban legendy type stuff, yeah. Yeah, I mean I mean I don't actually know that to be true, but I think that just speaks to, you know, I think for a lot of fans it's just very inexplicable and very frustrating why those versions aren't available. And I think mm-hmm. it's it's just sort of reaching for any kind of rationale as to yeah. why beyond, you know, what I just think is the simple fact that these are George Lucas's movies and he genuinely would rather they not be viewed in that yep. in that uh, form. I and mean, that's, and that's that's why I worry. I, I would hope if there's any time and, and, you know, home video collections are built on hope and all that. Um, if there's <laughs> any time when we would see. Sorry, that was the, a good line. Yeah, I mean, when they, if, there, if there's any time 
I, I, I think I, I think I say that one in the in the afterward to volume three, because I'm trying to give some measure of hope to those who are seeing things dwindle. Um, and so the fact that the community is still there. Um, but it seems like if there's any point at which we would see the originals in their original form, it would be the 50th anniversary of A New Hope because they passed, you know, 45, nothing. Yeah. 40, nothing. They're not really good at taking advantage of anniversaries. I'm finding with, mm. with home video releases most of the time. Um, there's like a 10th anniversary, like advertising campaign. There was, of course, a 20th anniversary with the special editions. But for the most part, anniversaries haven't been something they cared about. But it kind of falls back on that whole, you know, the, because of what Lucas wants with the films, apparently. And the fact that when you're talking about Lucasfilm, not necessarily with Disney, but Lucasfilm specifically, a lot of the leadership is still very personally loyal and exactly. close to Lucas. That right. if there was a time for that to happen, I almost feel like Lucas would have to be entirely out of the picture. The people who were so uh, locked into his vision would have to be out of the picture. But if you wait that long, who knows where physical media will even be if it's even a thing anymore, you know? Right. So there's a part of me that's, that feels like the only way we're going to get them is these fan recreations out there, despecialized editions and things like that, which I don't really follow a ton because my focus is it tends to be on the, the stuff that is released. Um, but yeah, it's just, it's one of those almost inexplicable things. That's actually why a lot of collectors, you know, they, they fight tooth and nail to make sure they have a working VCR still to play VHS. Mm -hmm. Uh, it's, it's why some like me years after Laserdisc is defunct, finally buy their first Laserdisc players. Like I bought my first Laserdisc player, like, probably like less than five years ago to, yeah. to be able to watch those because the further and further it goes along, the, the just, I mean, don't get me wrong. The 4k versions are gorgeous and they sound fantastic but it's not the original version. So as time goes on and we don't see those, there is more of a clinging back to that. And it's, and it's also in the, in the cusp of, you know, the, the speculation craze with VHS right now, that's kind of driving back towards sort of an earlier media format. But yeah, it's, it's Oh really, is that happening? There's like a, there's like a, oh, a high demand for VHS. Releases? So, kind of, so VHS has become the new speculative market, basically. Um, really? At, at one time it was comics like in the nineties. Now it's VHS. Um, wow. And okay. you so have... I should go back to my, I should get on the phone and call my parents and make sure they haven't thrown yeah, dig, out my VHS Dig it all back out. There's a pretty big speculation, <laughs> speculative market. Some of it was originally gamed a little bit, we think, by some of the grading companies. But there are now companies that grade VHS the way and beta the way they would grade comics or cards. Unfortunately, really? most of the time, these grading companies have no idea what the hell they're looking at. For example, on the same, like within a week of seeing an auction company and grading company trying to advertise a 1986 or up through 89 copy of a new hope as if it was 84. They also were, were touting this, this nice sealed cause they were originally sealed inside the sealed package. Um, 1992 widescreen version of return of the Jedi pristine condition. Look at this. It's less than a quarter of the product because it wasn't sold separately. That's part of the big box set with the hologram on right. the front. Why are you, you claiming this is a full product? So there, there's kind of an issue with what's happening essentially is there's a speculative kind of push where prices in some cases go through the roof because people think this is the next big thing they're going to be able to sell later and make money on. Some of it being manipulated early, um, but now it's kind of it's it's almost like become a self-perpetuating thing. Like you had some oh, companies that were sort of like like 
selling to their friends who didn't actually buy it. So there was an actual auction that said on eBay, this sold for a thousand dollars. I see. And then, you know, people would say, oh, well, it sold for a thousand. eBay suggesting this. I'm going to put it. And as you see those numbers rise, uh, it sort of builds this speculative environment. And I'm I'm an econ teacher. I am all for the idea. You know, if there's someone who is willing to only sell for that amount and there is someone who's willing to buy for that amount, have at it. That's supply and demand. And that is your little corner of the graph. But it, it, if it works for you, that's fine. Uh, but unfortunately, it is catching a lot of smaller collectors kind of in the crunch right now where. They're looking for something that, you know, five years ago, when prices weren't really driven by speculation, it was more just what the market would bear in terms of people actually just buying and selling these things secondhand might cost like 50 to 100 bucks are now going or maybe not going for certainly being asked to pay two grand for something mm. that used to be much small. Um so that's kind of been the crunch now, but I think between the surge of interest in earlier versions of the Star Wars films, because they don't seem to be coming, and that happening right now, Star Wars in particular is in kind of ahead of the curve, unfortunately being crushed in between those two forces to be some of the, the ones that are spiking the highest on the speculative and, and auction type market right now. Uh, well, but yeah, VHS is becoming a thing. Laserdisc, not as much, but there are dedicated like Laserdisc collecting communities. Um, that you'll find well, online and places like that. But but VHS is kind of the new speculative thing, beta to a smaller degree. And, and I figure, you know, give it 10 years, 15 years, and all of a sudden it'll be DVD and you know, just, yeah. just a continuous roll of this is nostalgic. You know, like like when my students refer to something that happened in 1999, like The Phantom Menace came out in theaters in the late 1900s. Oh, God. Yeah. You oh, know? God. Yeah, th oh, God. I yeah, mean, that that's really true, hits me. but oh, God. <laughs> you know? I mean, that's strictly true, but I'm not <laughs> you understand it that for way, me, 20 uh, years ago is 1980. What are you talking about? Yeah, right. <laughs> um, two other things I just want to ask you real quick. So episode three, Revenge of the Sith. Was that the only Star Wars film to not receive a U.S. VHS release? Uh, yeah, of the long of the live action films. Yeah, uh, at least of, of Lucas's films, although. For Attack of the Clones, there wasn't a widescreen version, but there was a full screen. Oh, is that true? Yeah, Revenge of the Sith yeah. over here didn't get one. Uh, in other markets, it did. I've got some from like Japan, the UK, Finland. Um, so, but the box art isn't the same, right? The box art is designed to be similar to the other VHS releases. Yeah, because um, I remember when episode one was released on home video, was it simultaneously released on DVD and VHS? So Phantom Menace got released uh, on VHS in 2000 and on Laserdisc in Japan in 2000. Didn't hit DVD widescreen until 2001. Didn't hit okay. DVD full screen until 2002. So okay. there was still a little bit of a lag. Because I remember putting my VHS copy up on the shelf next to my original trilogy. Yes, exactly. Exactly. Yes. Uh, right. Oh, okay. Uh, so that's a UK uh, uh, release. Yeah, I figured you'd edit this out, but yeah, I just want to show you. Yeah, so there's... Oh, that's very cool. And if you look actually in the book, there's a side-by-side -side shot of most of the ones that I've got. I've gotten one from France since then, but all mm -hmm. the, the few that I have of VHS Revenge of the Sith are actually, they're in a side-by-side -side picture. Well, as a collector, so by 2005, 2006, I had abandoned VHS long ago for DVD as my home video format of choice. But as a collector, my heart did go out to the person who was collecting the entire saga on VHS and was never able to complete it with that episode three spine on their shelf. It pains me, even though I wasn't directly affected because I was happy with my DVDs. But, but the idea that you only could have one, two, four, five, six. 
Mm-hmm. It's, it's sort yeah. of infuriating to me, the thought of it. You know, you would have loved to see at least a limited release of a VHS of Revenge of the Sith in the U.S. just to finish out those sets. You could have right. at least made some money maybe on boxed sets. I mean, hell, for the, right. pre- the, for the prequels, they did a box set of episodes one and two in 2002. That's not a whole trilogy, but they still right. did a box set on DVD yeah. and VHS. And yet, although it's full screen DVD, so I'm not sure if that should count because that's... Ugh. Um, but yeah, there are just some weird decisions that, that get made, but I think they're, they're decisions that mostly are driven by the market more so than being driven by anything with a mind towards what's out there. Or it's funny, as much as Lucasfilm is concerned with legacy, the home video arms usually aren't, I guess is what I would say, unless it is, we're going to put out some kind of big box set to commemorate something like the 20th Century Fox 75th anniversary set that has a new hope in it. Um, or the giant uh, AFI 100 Years 100 Movies um, uh, VHS set from Blockbuster that I have freaking ignorance, like 100 pounds of VHS tapes. They just, they just don't really put that kind of thought into it a lot of time, which is unfortunate. Which is unfortunate and is also interesting because if you're talking about legacy, home video is the way these films are going to live on for most people. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so that's an interesting sort of a contradiction there. Uh, two questions, one self-serving and one to sort of tie everything up together. Um, so I, very similar to you, in 2001, I walked into a used record store and I saw the original trilogy definitive laser disc collection, sort of in like the black sleeve, like was like the... Mm-hmm. Um, oh, the little flap that um, opens, yeah. Oh uh, yeah, the flap that opens. Um, and I, like you, I did not have a laser disc player in 2001. I never had a laser disc player. But I bought it because it was only like 20 bucks. It was like a fire sale on 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 Laserdisc because in 2001, who wanted right wanted a Laserdisc of anything? So I have it. It's proudly displayed on my shelf. But I read somewhere that that release specifically suffers from what is called disc rot or laser rot or something mm-hmm. like I guess they're what, like almost 30 years old. They're not uh, playable. Is that correct? It's going to depend on the on the disc itself, like the condition it's been in. But yeah, you can see what you can see, like visible patches um, mm. where the material inside the disc itself is is starting to to get bad. Uh, kind of like seeing mold on VHS cassettes these days. Now, the, these older media don't really hold up. They weren't they weren't designed, you know, to hold up for decades. You know, they were designed for like that immediate yeah. use. Um, and it's got the same thing with like VHS, where you play it so much that even if it is in pristine condition, otherwise it slowly wears over time Mm -hmm. um but yeah and you just you just got to keep an eye out for them i know that there's some fans don't really worry too much about it when they're collecting because they're not going to watch them they're just going to display them um some are concerned about it um from a value standpoint but not as much with laserdisc right now it just kind of varies you can find them i don't think mine at this point i've been lucky most of the stuff that i've run into has not run into much in the way of laser rot but it just really depends on you know who manufactured it when um, the conditions it's been held How in it's and been stuff stored. like that. Yeah. 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 And it's, but, but it's one of those things that most these days, because of not having laser disc players don't pay as much attention to kind of like the, like VHS with the mold sometimes, although it's a little more visible on the cassette. Um, mm-hmm. they, you know, well, I'm not going to ever play it. So you just reminded me, um, something that drove me crazy at the time, my THX remastered widescreen set, the tapes themselves, the third one, Return of the Jedi, was from a different manufacturer. So the case on the outside was like, 
I don't know, it was like vertical slats. Whereas for Empire and A New Hope, the pattern on the outside of like the plastic cover was something entirely different. And that used to drive me absolutely crazy because the three of them didn't match. And I was wondering how that could have happened. I guess like they they switched either manufacturers or the manufacturer had a certain amount of this kind and a certain amount of that kind. And somewhere in the changeover, like my specific set got two yeah. of one and one of the other. <laughs> Probably it's, I mean, it, it depends on, you know, where it's being manufactured, who's assembling it, how it's being assembled. I, I will say you run into a lot of issues, for instance, early on where you'll see labels carry over from one sort of generation of a VHS cassette into the packaging of the next, even though most of that production mm. run is going to have a different label in it, like the transition from the uh, sort of grayish black with red letters into the uh, white background with black letters type labels. You start mm -hmm. to see that. Um, you see that with CED especially, because CED is exactly the kind of thing you were talking about. Of it, it had to do with the manufacturing process. With CED, they eventually reach a point where they... Uh, so um, you've got blue typically for stereo release as far as the caddy's little disc looking thing that goes around the, the actual disc. Uh, the floppy disc looking thing, save icon looking thing right? Uh, that goes around the actual disc. Um, typically it was blue for stereo, white for mono. By the time you get to one of the reissues of uh, A New Hope, uh, it's out there with a blue caddy, but the actual thing that you can see in a sort of a bar along the top that actually holds the disc when you stick it into the player is white. And then there are two different versions uh, that you could find of Jedi, which is a two disc set, nice and bulky, nice and freaking heavy, um, where there's a blue version and a white version. Because during the process, it was just like, oh, we don't have any other blue caddies for this stereo release. Just stick them in a, a white one. The format's dying anyway, kind of thing, you know, like because yeah, that was the right, year in right. which the format was going to die. Um but yeah, you see, you see oddball manufacturing stuff like that at times. It's sort of the equivalent of where you see issues like, um, you know, like with with action figures where there's an error or something where they've they've uh, put the wrong blaster right, in sure. with something or whatever. Um, right. And then what happens after that on the secondary market depends on whether someone looks at that and says that's a valuable thing, or they, they say that's just a mistake. Right. It, right. Is it a exactly. variant? Depends. Is it an error variant, <laughs> or is it just an error? Yeah, you know, that's. Again, and then in the eye of the beholder thing, I guess, for uh, indeed, collectors. Indeed. Do you have a release that's sort of a white whale that you're trying to track down that you haven't been able to get your hands on yet? Um, Yeah, I would say that. Um, so two things, I guess. One non-retail, which would just be, it'd be great to someday get my hands on a screener copy of uh, Force Awakens. Um, because oh. those were not very widely distributed. I've seen the a bunch of Disney screeners of that era and what they look like for like the Marvel stuff. I uh, haven't run across one yet for a, uh, for force awakens. That'd be kind of a cool thing to find. Um, but I would say that probably the thing that, that frustrates me now is uh, actually going back to the beginning, going back to the super eight reels um, back in the day, there was a, there were two larger case versions of a new hope reels one of which had the the poster art as the cover, that particular one, mm -hmm. which was offered. There, there were reels offered in that version in pan and scans. What we think of now is full screen four by three or, or well, super eight. But but that, we think of it as full screen in relation to that that era. Um, but there was a widescreen version that essentially required a special scope um, lens to view properly. And I know it was released by Ken Films in the U.S. and there were releases in other places. That is definitely one of my white whales. I've yet to ever come across one of those. I would also say, um, oh gosh, my, uh, 
finding the other video eight releases or other video 2000 releases that I don't have out of the UK. Um, because you know, video eight incredibly rare in general. I was lucky. Uh, I was lucky enough, uh, to get my hands on the Japanese ones, the three Japanese ones, and one from the UK. Actually, oddly enough, I, I had watched a video by uh, Techmom on YouTube about Video 8 and what the format even was. And they used a copy of Return of the Jedi as one of their example products. And eventually so you know I reached exists. out to the guy and wound up buying <laughs> his from him. Um, oh, wow. <laughs> so it's the one that's in the video. Um, it's the only one I've managed to ever come across in the UK on Video 8. And V2000 v is... A, almost as rare uh vcc slash video 2000 slash v2000 all names for the same thing so yeah stuff like that tends to stand out um these days i'm tending to pick up kind of oddball stuff um, but it's not white whale type stuff at this point most of the stuff that i was like I, I don't think i would ever get my hands on this over the years of hunting and hunting and hunting finally getting my hands on them now it's kind of like because because one of the big things for the book was not only did I want the second edition to be super comprehensive with all kinds of different variants and a little bit more narrative than the first edition was. By comparison, the first edition was about 300 pages, about 300 grayscale pictures. The The second edition across the three volumes is like a thousand pages and about 1500 color pictures. One of the things was I want complete control over this. So every picture has to be something I took and it has to be of an item from my collection. So it was just a massive hunt for several years so that most of what I was really hunting for, I've been able to to find. But there's still those few things that linger, just oddball little variant items. But thankfully, since the core of my collection is U.S. and I have pretty much all the U.S. stuff at this point, I can sit back and if it's from another region, just say, that'd be nice if I could have it. But I don't need it you know like it's, you have to fight it <laughs> have to fight it but but technically it's not a need technically so yeah so in closing you know it's very common for for people to collect say comics or collect action figures what is it about home video releases that that is your particular thing what what is it that draws you to it what is so fascinating to you about it why home video releases um, well, I mean, I got into it kind of on a lark almost. So I did that Star Wars Timeline project slash Star Wars Timeline Gold for about 20 years, 20, 21 years, which meant keeping up with all the stories. So I had been collecting the books and comics to have at least one copy of every single story. And aside from the RPG stuff, pretty much had a complete collection. But it's because I started in like 93. <laughs> it was doing it for, for years and years and years. And I got to a point where all I was really doing aside from picking up new releases was I would pick up something I already owned, but I would replace it with a signed copy or something. You know, there just wasn't the thrill of the hunt really as much anymore. I kind of just had it. It was it was a library in the sense of I could reference it if I needed it for the timeline, but just kind of sitting there. And I got to a point where I was sort of waning in interest on that. I wanted to look at something else to collect. So I started thinking home video might be something to pick up because I, I felt like I already had quite a few. <laughs> Not compared to what I realized later was out there. I call it my Wiley e. Coyote moment, right? Where you're already off the cliff and you have the choice of either scrambling back or looking down and falling. And I just was like, ah, fall. Why not? Um, yeah. <laughs> but around the same time was when they did the reboot and they'd announced the reboot of continuity. So the Legends continuity became Legends as opposed to the continuity for Star Wars and then the right. canon. And I had been doing a video series on YouTube called From the Star Wars Library about the books and comics and publication order. And at that point, anything of that type of discussion became an absolute lightning rod for trolls. It was just, it, it would have been untenable to keep pushing that series. 
But alongside it, I had started from the Star Wars Home Video Library. I was collecting a bit of stuff, showing it on the channel. I was having fun collecting it, but I wasn't like as headfirst into it. But when the collecting of the books became like new releases only kind of stuff, pretty much. And that was happening. So my focus on the channel really started to lean towards the home video stuff. That kind of got me. It got me kind of heavily towards it. But then the teacher instinct kicked in, I would say, because I realized that from a resource standpoint, there really isn't a lot out there. Like the reason I wrote a saga on home video eventually, the first edition and now the second edition, is because the resources almost are non-existent for Star Wars home video collectors. There's price guides and collecting guides that are woefully incomplete most of the time. Um, there's SWOnVideo.com, which is actually one of the places I learned a lot early on. Davis DVD at one point had an article, but they were all kind of, in one case, it was like one person's collection, which is pretty heavy, but didn't hit everything, but didn't try to hit everything. Another one that was sort of like a text listing. The resources just really weren't there. So since I was getting passionate about collecting it and liking to do the show and the interaction with it on YouTube, that's sort of just, it was like the adrenaline boost, I guess you could say, mm. to the collecting. And then when someone said, well, why don't you write a book on this stuff? And I actually started considering it, that again, kicked it up. And then the, hey, if a second edition is going to be out, it's going to be full color. And it's going to cover as much as I can cram in there, a massive thing. It's, it's like it was sort of a self-perpetuating thing once that happened. As to what I find just that, that keeps me interested in it, that I found the most fascinating is... I thought I would have told you when I started, it was just the fact that there were different like bonus features across releases and seeing st the, those types of differences. I think now it's more the broader stuff that you see with patterns within other countries versus the U.S. patterns within the U.S. market, the minor variations of stuff um, and the fact that because it's still such a niche thing. I am able to kind of help share information about it. I get to, to have that sort of service mentality like I did with the timeline for so long. It's still kind of that, that I want to be a resource to the community type of thing. Um, and it helps that in this era in which most Star Wars fan groups, many, um, particularly if they're just generalized Star Wars, are pretty toxic or have a pretty toxic side to them where I don't just mm. don't enjoy that interaction as much. The Star Wars home video community, outside of a small niche based around that speculative market right now, for the most part, the Star Wars home video community has been very positive overall and has a very welcoming atmosphere to it maybe because it is so niche and in particular uh there's a home video group on facebook run by justin berger that i also moderate that has just been a fantastic place to you know to crowdsource things to share ideas to share new acquisitions to encourage each other um it's part of why i definitely feel and this is again where the kind of the afterward of, of volume three comes in it's just even if the the physical releases dwindle down to nothingness there'll still be stuff out there to find from previous releases and still a community based around it. And that community doesn't seem to be daunted by this at all. Tends to be a community mm. that's very positive and very welcoming about it. And in this fandom climate, especially with social media, that's kind of a rare thing. So I almost feel like right now where I am in the collecting, it's not even as much the thrill of the hunt type stuff anymore. It's the sharing the knowledge aspect and having a place, having a community to participate in that cares about something I care about with Star Wars that is just almost like a safe haven in the craziness of what is social media these days. Um, so it's weird. I almost feel like it may not even as much be the products themselves at this point in my collecting. Um, the products drew me in. The products were what I seeped myself in. But the community is kind of what keeps me here. The community is what caused me to spend, you know, I don't even know how many years, <laughs> day after day, hurting my backs, kneeling on the floor here in my office with a photo box, taking 
you know, thousands of pictures of products to eventually go through the, the painstaking process of editing and correcting and inserting and everything. Um, I don't think if it was just about the products, I would have done it. I really do feel like it's the community that is wrapped up around these things that do it. And maybe that exists elsewhere. I mean, maybe action figure collectors feel the same way. I was for years. I did segments on a, on Star Wars Action News, which is a collecting podcast. I did segments for them. And I know that there are similar communities about other things. Um, but this one just kind of captured me. And it's it's I, I have faith that it's a community that will continue going, even if the next live action Star Wars films like the Disney Plus stuff just never see a physical release. I, I think the community will still be there. Find the Star Wars Home Video Group on Facebook. That's the name of it. Find us there. Find other like-minded people to commiserate about the stuff that you care about with Star Wars and try to find a a non-toxic place to do that. I cannot tell you how much of a boon that has been with this community. So even if you don't collect home video, find a place like that. Um, It can do wonders for your fandom and for just your state of mind when you need an escape, I would say, especially in in times, times that are crazy. That's a wonderful answer. I'm I'm glad that that exists and that that you found that. And I really want to thank you for putting this resource together as someone who, you know, I clearly enjoy learning about the minutia of all sorts of niche subjects, in particular when it's a, a, a subset under the broader Star Wars umbrella. So so as soon as I discovered a saga on home video, it was a no brainer purchase for me. I clicked buy now immediately and I devoured it pretty quickly. And I I'm looking forward to diving into volume two and volume three. So for our listeners, if someone is interested in learning more, purchasing a copy of your book or taking a look at your YouTube show, where should people go to buy the book and to find you on YouTube? Sure. Uh, So on YouTube, what you'd be looking for is a search from the Star Wars home video library. It's the name of the series. Um, The channel is youtube.com slash chrono radio. It's the name of my original podcast from back in 02. Uh, chrono like chronology radio i never changed that and then if you're looking for the book it is essentially an amazon exclusive i did it as a self-publishing thing because I, like i said i wanted full control um so you can find it on amazon there it's three volumes it's a saga on home video second edition you don't need to worry about running into the first edition because it is not available first volume is basically the live action films through 2015 as far as home video releases go, the second is live action films in the Disney era, essentially 2016 onward. And then the third volume is basically everything else. Droids, Ewoks, behind the scenes, Clone Wars, etc. They're all available as a paperback version. There is a sort of a deluxe hardback version of each uh, paperback versions. Regular paper hardback is on sort of a premium glossy paper. And then for the budget conscious, because self-publishing means the printing costs make the cost a little high. There is also a Kindle version that works on the Kindle app. It does not work on e-ink reader, so don't try to use your Kindle Paperwhite like I have. You'd need an app or the e-ink reader. It's a print replica, which is basically as if you'd taken pictures of every single page. Uh, And I actually am very fond of the Kindle version. You can zoom in on the pictures, and they are crystal clear. So, I mean, you can get really close in on those images with those. Um, But yeah, all three different volumes are up there uh, on Amazon at this point. Um, uh, So yeah, those those are the... those are the big ones, despite everything else kind of getting going into retirement as I get older and, and more father time. Uh, those are the two places to look. Indeed, indeed. And we didn't even cover your experiences creating the audio drama, so I'll have to have you back on at some point. Thank you very much for creating this resource. I know it was a lot of work, but I'm very glad that this exists. And like I said, I really enjoyed reading volume one. And thank you for being so gracious with your time. And happy birthday. Oh, thank you. Uh, Thank you from both counts. (laughs) 
I want to thank my guest, Nathan Butler, for the work that he's done and for his time. And if you liked what you heard, please visit us at TrashComPod.com, where you can find transcripts of this episode and all of our other episodes. We are also TrashComPod across all social media. And we will see you on the next one.